My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Think differently music. Music creates order out of chaos, for rhythm imposes unanimity upon the divergent, melody imposes continuity upon the disjointed, and harmony imposes compatibility upon the incongruous. Yehudi Menuhin. Welcome back. Music is never entirely incidental in a movie made by our guest this week, director, collage artist, and music maker, Jim Jarmusch. If you've ever seen any of his movies, movies like Mystery Train or Down by Law, you know that it serves as a through line running through his character's black comedy gags and existential wanderings. Jarmusch's movies don't always adhere to the same stylistic template, but music is always integral to what's happening on screen. The soundtrack to one of his films, 2014's Vampire Yarn Only Lovers Left Alive, was recently reissued by Sacred Bones Records, which also puts out albums by Jim's band Squirrel, and it features lutenist Joseph Van Visum and guest appearances by Madeline Follen of Colts, Zola Jesus, and Yasmin Hamdan. Jarmus joined us from his place in upstate New York to discuss the pastoralism that defines his creative practice these days. His early time in the New York underground, collaborators like John Lurie and Steve Buscemi, and of course music. Neil Young, Tom Waits, Iggy, Wu-Tang Clan, and beyond. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it with your friends. You can rate and review the show if you feel moved to do so. And if you want to take your support a step further, you can check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. All right, I'm very excited to share this one. Here's me in conversation with Jim Jarmish. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here on Transmissions. I'm very thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Well, to start this episode episode off, we we heard a few selections from your discography uh, or stuff that's associated with you. At least we heard uh, your your Wu Tang infomercial, one of them from the Wu Tang Clan meets Indie Culture Volume One. Then we heard Squirrels, Streets of Detroit. And then I played a tiny bit of Kurt Vile's Losing Momentum for Jim Jarmusch, which is, of course, his slowed down 33 RPM remix of a 45. Um, you eventually yeah. heard, you, you heard that at some point, right? And invited him to I, do All Tomorrow's Parties? Well, actually, I'd invited him before, and then I heard that, and then I felt kind of funny, like, oh, are you just inviting him? Because he did it. But I, I was just interested in his music, and then after already kind of uh, trying to figure out the roster for the ATP thing, uh, then, yeah, I, I, I found out about that beautiful, pe- that beautiful piece of music he made. 
I was isn't, very honored. Isn't isn't it? It's I mean I like the original too when it's played at the right speed, but when you put it in that register, the thirty three RPM register, it just sounds so ghostly and beautiful. Uh, it's really a, a pretty remarkable and evocative thing. Yeah, it really is. But I love those minor changes to things. I, I like. I have a great looping pedal, but you can take it to half speed, which I'm playing with that a lot. You know, reversing tracks and slowing them down. And uh, but I, you know, I have a kind of slow rhythm in the way I talk, in the music I make, in the films I make. And I think Kurt kind of honed in on that too, in a way. So. Yeah, I was just kind of honored. I thought it was really a really cool piece of music. Yeah. But he, he's a remarkable, you know, he's a remarkable musician. He sure is. Big big fan of him here. Um when when we when we spoke for Aquarium Drunkard a couple of years ago, I think you mentioned that you'd assembled a studio in the Hudson Valley. Have you been able to safely access it over the the last year, year and a half? Yeah, I'm living there now. I've been mostly living up here. I'm there now. Uh, so I've been up here working. Um, I, uh, my studio is, I'm still troubleshooting some annoying hums and buzzes and things, but with the kind of music I make, that's not a catastrophe. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, I work in there almost every day, either on music or art or writing. But yeah, it's the size of one large garage bay. It actually was part of my garage. So uh, it really is a garage studio. But yeah, I'm in heaven. Uh, I just record onto, you know, I go through Focus Right into GarageBand, but I have a lot of pedals and effects. And I, I've gathered some really, some nice instruments. And uh, I, I'm kind of in heaven when I'm in my garage. Yeah, that's awesome. You've got all sorts of collaborators. Have have they been able to have you been able to have other people in there with you or has the last year and a half mostly been you working on your own? It's been me alone and then trading tracks, you know. Yeah. Uh so I cuz I'm way behind but I'm supposedly making a new record with Yosef Van Vissen cuz we've made a few now and but he's waiting still for my tracks. I was delayed by uh by some just some things I was troubleshooting in my studio. Uh, Carter Logan and I are working on some stuff. Um, I've been gathering a whole collection of solo electric, almost all electric guitar pieces. Um, that would be like a double record. I have enough stuff for that. So yeah, collecting a lot of stuff, working on a few other projects that I, I don't know if I can mention because I'm not sure if they're announced yet, but uh, one of them involves remixes. I think I could men mention it. No, I don't know. It's like, uh, anyway, no, I, I won't. I'll just leave those go. But a couple of cool things I'm working on too musically now. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty great. I mean, obviously the last the the recent stretch of time has been pretty brutal in so many ways. But as far as being able to hole up in the studio and work on stuff i suppose there hasn't been much else to do so it's it's a good good time for that well yeah, it's been brutal in a lot of ways and sad and strange um but for me it's been the, the really good thing is i have for years been 
trying to live most of my time up here in, in the Catskills, you know, and, and just part of my time in the city. And I, I used to be up here like maybe one fourth of the time. And now I've pretty much flipped that. So I'm in the city, maybe only a fourth or a sixth of the time lately. And uh, for me, that's like a dream come true because I, I love New York City. I love traveling. I've spent my life traveling. I've spent my life, you know, a lot of my adult life living in New York, which I do deeply love, even though it's changed in a lot of ways that I don't love. But what up here, I, it's like I'm in the woods, you know, I have a, a room where I can record music, I can work on art. I have a book of uh, newsprint collages coming out soon in, in June, um, anthology books and a show coming up in uh, September at uh, James Fuentes uh, Gallery in New York. So, and I'm making more of those. I have a little screening room in the other room where I can just, I have the Criterion channel, which I call my my drug dealer, you know? So uh, yeah. I have incredible films. I try to watch at least one film every evening. And then I can make music, work on art. I'm working on a book of poems. Uh, I have, you know, little scripts I'm not working on as much as I had intended. But it's like a dream, you know? And it's very, very cool quiet and secluded and there's a lot of birds and animals i've been getting up recently for this one project to record the dawn chorus of birds at like five between five and six a.m and uh, because in may you know now's the time all the birds have returned and it is insane it it is amazing so i have some recordings of those now some tracks that i'm going to add some things to maybe with carter uh it's just nice to live in a place where you know there are bears walking around if you're not careful and coyote last night i saw two a pair of beautiful owls right outside my house and they went from one tree to another tree these were very large owls and uh oh incredible you know when owls fly they make no sound that's why they're such kind of scary predators if you're their prey because yeah. the front edge of their wings is serrated in a way that it's silent. Yeah. So these owls, they were, they were large animals, you know, and they just sort of jump off the branch and then catch themselves with their wings and cruise. And I didn't hear a thing, you know, so that was kind of cool. So, you know, I'm seeing all that kind of stuff. I hear coyotes at night. I, come out of my little studio at midnight sometimes there's like a deer standing there you know yeah so it's just kind of great I, I i've you know i love that kind of stuff so i've kind of been in heaven part of this pandemic thing you know getting to just be up here and work on my own stuff and create things it's been kind of great you know, at first it was cool because I was like, yeah, nobody can ask me to, oh, can you come and do a Q&A at the, you know, the Metrograph, you know, a theater I really love. But now I, I, I'm like, no, I'm upstate. But then it's like, can you do it by Zoom? And it's like, oh, damn it. Damn they, this Zoom thing, you know. They got you. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> but that's good, too. So anyway, yeah, I, I'm really digging it up here. I, I really love it. And I can make music as loud as I want all yeah. night long i don't have neighbors close enough to hear it what am i going to bother the, the foxes outside you know yeah yeah well 
Well, your work is known for, you've already alluded to it, the sort of patient pace at thing, at which things move. Um, you know, whether it's a comedy like The Dead Don't Die or, or something more atmospheric like Patterson, I mean, which I guess is sort of, it's sort of a comedy in my mind. I don't know how, a, a very gentle comedy, you know. Um, but uh, But whatever you do, even something that's a little bit more atmospheric or, or, or brooding like limits of control or ghost dog, that, that slow patient crawl is always, is always present in your work and in your musical work as well. I think so many people's perception, at least I certainly know my own, my own perception of time has changed so much through the, the pandemic and, uh, and, and natural pace has been sort of in a weird way, disrupted did you find that your your routines changed or your perception of the way you think of hours has has changed at all over the last the last year well yeah you know the for a, a lot of last year i didn't honestly i wouldn't even know what day it was anymore you know it'd be like really it's saturday yeah so yeah that changed a lot but not in any way that was upsetting it was kind of a nice uh, way to just drift because then you'd call your friends and then they'd say the same thing like wait what day is it you know so everyone was kind of suspended but as far as that personal rhythm of things of expression you know i don't analyze those i don't really know where that comes from it's kind of like if you were to ask uh Cy twombly why are your paintings so kind of minimal or or if you ask uh you know, certain musicians like Morton Feldman, why is everything so slow and spare? You know, right. some people just have certain rhythms of expression. I re remember a few years ago, I was talking to, I guess, Josh Softy, the Softy Brothers, whose films I, I like a lot. And I was saying, and we were saying, uh, I, I said, you know, I love your films so much, your films so much sometimes because they're very, very different than the rhythm I would ever find. And he was laughing, saying, me and my brother were saying that recently about your films. Like, well, we really dig his films because they're nothing like the rhythm we would ever, like, you know, right. embark on. And so, you know, it's an appreciate, but, but I don't really know where it, that stuff really comes from. I know that when I first started making films, I was very much inspired by very kind of pure classical approaches to telling a story with a camera like uh, Robert Bresson or, or Mitsuguchi and Ozu, the Japanese directors. And uh, I really liked that kind of purity and that kind of rhythm. Um, and then also I started making films really at the time when MTV just sort of emerged making these essentially visual commercials for, for pop songs. Right. Yeah. And, you know, part of me reacted contrarily to that because I am a, a contrary. And I was like, yeah, man, I don't want to make anything with that kind of rhythm. I mean, even now when you watch action films, uh, they have a thing where that, you know, nothing's on more than three seconds before there's an edit. And right. then occasionally a long shot will last five or six seconds, you know? 
I, I got to say, after five minutes of that shit, I got a headache and I, I can't I can't deal with that three seconds and then a cut. It drives me nuts. So, yeah, it might just be part of my way of perceiving things that I find that very annoying. I got to say so much of, of Patterson, which is one of my favorites of yours, uh, is centered on you know repeated rhythms and patterns uh that feeling of day in and day out that kind of went away for a lot of people during the pandemic but i wonder do you find that you kind of keep to your own personal i mean do you do, do you have your own repeated rhythms that that play throughout your days just in terms of your your personal rituals or things like that uh, I do a little bit, you know, I mean, I try to do some physical things first. Uh, lately, I walk three miles a day and I often do some Tai Chi at the end of which I have uh, some meditate meditation period. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to do that as a kind of what, what I do every day. And then the rest of the day varies depending on obligations I have or what free time I get to escape into my into my studio yeah so that those things vary but i do try to have a certain rhythm of first paying attention to my you know myself as a as a machine or whatever my you know my physical being that's obviously connected to to my whatever you know my chi so i, I try to pay attention to that and then proceed with the day but not, not much more than that but, you know, you mentioned like repetition and variations um, in Patterson, but I think you'll find them in all, all my films and music, too. Uh, it's there's something very these are kind of gold mines for me. I, I love variations. I love them in, you know, from Bach to Warhol to, you know, whatever the, the yeah. idea of things being varied. And, and that's what nature is, too, and it shows you endless variations. And those things, uh, wow, really inspire me. Like, I'm, a, I'm an amateur mycologist and ornithologist, right? I, 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 for years, I, I tried mushroom identification and, and bird identification. But, like, fungi, there are, like, I don't know, 50,000 I don't know how many different species there are, four times more than plants, right? Mm -hmm. But just the, the idea of the variations and the, the minute differences in species and, and variations in nature is insane. You know, I was watching this documentary about Oliver Sacks, and he was, uh, part of his life, he was obsessed with ferns. And because the there are so many variants of just that one plant, which are very, very ancient, right? So I was kind of interested in his fascination with the varieties of them. And then repetition. I mean, that's like, uh, oh, man, such a beautiful kind of form to use in so many ways in, in art and music and everything, architecture and, you know. So right. the, yeah, the, I always those things just are innate for me. They're kind of like uh, guiding paths of uh, repetition and variation. Talking about some of the endless variety of of mushrooms or things like that. I a, a while back on the podcast we had uh, an author Noah Lekas and and Ethan Miller from the group 
uh, Comets on Fire and Howlin' Rain. And we were talking, we were sort of talking about, you know, being music listeners. and, 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 And I mentioned that I've talked with some friends who will tell me things like, it, that it bums them out that they're never going to be able to hear all of the things that they should hear, you know, because there's just so much out in the world. They're never going to hear all the records they should hear or see all the films they should see or read all the books they should read. I kind of feel more drawn to the to the opposite of that. That fills me with hope knowing that I'm going to die with stuff left unheard or unseen, you know, because to me yeah. the... The thing that I that I love in art and that I love in music is that sense that as long as there are people, there are going to be variations and mutations, and and things are going to develop in new, fascinating ways. And and to me, that that fills that fills me with a lot more hope than you know uh, than than it bums me out. You know what I mean? I do. I I have like both sides of that. Like I was thinking just the other day, you know, I'm not so young anymore. I've spent a lot of my life collecting vinyl records and then unfortunately CDs and I I still have cassettes, you know, and then I have DVDs and all these things. And I was thinking, I was just looking at my vinyl collection and thinking, Man, if I just start putting these on the turntable now until the rest of my life, I'll never play them all again. You know, right, it's like, right. and then there are all these new things I want to find out about, which are overwhelming because you can't keep track. Like if you just look at hip hop alone, everything's changed. Now a hip hop hit will be a hit for a month at the most. Right. And then there, the next thing, the next thing, it's like, I can't keep track, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I also I'm with you because what I love is to wake up each morning and think, God, what great piece of music or book or film or what might I discover that I never even knew about, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. the endless possibilities just really uh, inspire me. And I was sort of criticized in some ways for this, but the heart of the film Only Lovers Left Alive is sort of about that because, and some, you know, I guess critically people said, I, I'm, I'm an elitist or whatever, because those two characters, Adam and Eve, they've lived for hundreds of years. So their knowledge and appreciation of things is incredibly vast, you know? And yet they're still interested in learning new stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I really feel like... W- what might I discover today that I never experienced before? Yeah, yeah. What What are you like as a, as a music listener? Do you tend to focus on a few albums for like a sustained period of time, or or do you cycle through things pretty frequently? Well, I'm a fanatic, so I can't. You know, I'm very indulgent by uh, how can I say just by what I feel like, you know? So I go through periods, like last week I made a mixtape of, you know, on on digital, uh, of John Cage, music of John Cage. And then I found certain pieces that were interpreted by different uh, performers, a certain piano piece. So I put like five in a row and they're just slightly different, you know? So, you know, I had, a, I had a big John Cage day, but, you know, I might wake up and I've got to hear Miami by the Gun Club or I've got to hear, 
you know, I got to go back. Oh my God, it's Ghostface Killer's birthday. I, you know, um, I got to listen to some some of his stuff. Or yeah, so it really varies so much uh, as to whether I'm going to listen to, you know, some maybe obscure classical music, or I'm going to listen to, uh, I don't know, um, some metal stuff, stoner metal neuroses, or if I want to listen to Royal Trucks or I, I don't know. Like I'm sort of a fanatic, so it's really variable. But I listen to music a lot. Yeah, and you know, I really music is really, I think, the most beautiful form of human expression. I gotta say, I love movies because they're the closest to dreams in a way. Mm. Uh, you can sort of tap into sort of the illogic or lack of logic of dreams. You can also Movies can be very traditional in terms of narrative and telling stories, which is such a beautiful ancient form, you know, but, uh, but a film can be like a dream because it has imagery, it has its own rhythm, it has sounds, but music is so pure, you know, I think sometimes I saw some footage on YouTube of like, I think it was Eric B. and Rakim playing somewhere in Central Europe, or I, I might be imagining this, but people were singing, <laughs> you know, singing along, but they don't know what the lyrics are. Yeah. They're like yeah. mouthing along to, you know, to Rakim. How, how can that even be? But it's, the music was still so important. It was hitting them. They were, they were feeling it, you know? Right. So right. I, I don't know. I just, I, music is just remarkable to me. It's so magical. Another thing you mentioned when we last spoke is that at that point you were listening to the then current posthumous Alan Vega record. It um, have you? Oh have yeah. You, have you been able to listen to his new one, Mutator, which is on the oh, same yeah, def- Sacred Bones? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, I've been trying to think of something I could do because Liz, his his wife, you know, she's really a remarkable person and. They're trying to get other artists that really love Alan Vega's work to like create little things around Mutator. And I, I wanted to write something or make some small film, but I've been sucked away in so many things. But yeah, I've been I've been blasting uh, Mutator for like a month or two now. Excellent. The notion that there's more in the the Vega vault is also something that makes me very happy and excited to know. You know. Yeah, definitely. And hats off to Martin Rev too. You know, I like his solo stuff as well. But uh, those yeah, guys a lot of it really. Seemed, yeah, so much of it is 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 fantastic. Those two were. Those two are. Uh, their esteem only grows. Um, yeah, it's really true. You know. Well, so you you've always worked with a lot of musicians in your films. You but you you started playing when you were in your your early twenties or so. Is that right? Yeah. What, yeah, what, I mean, what drew you to play? In, <laughs> playing in quotes. Well, what drew me was the wild enthusiasm in New York City and the East Village, Lower East Side of like making our own music that could be amateuristic, you know? And that whole thing was just exhilarating that, you know, that I've said this in other interviews, but there was a time in the late 70s where there were uh, flyers up posted everywhere in the East Village that at one point that said, 
everyone here is in a band <laughs> and it was it was kind of true you know yeah but it was so exciting that oh man this isn't fueled by professionalism or i'm gonna get over or it was like fueled by expression and you know the people starting that you know and all, all of these things are like I, I look at all forms of expression and like schools of music as just waves in the ocean that break off of one another so you know but what what's kind of exploded in the you know in the, in the lower east side at that point around maxes and then of course cbgb's and then uh, after that other clubs and then the so-called you know no wave period was amazing because there was also a renunciation of like just playing blues-based rock and roll, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It was like, okay, let's see what else can happen here. And that's very important to me. And as much as I have huge, you know, idols in guitar music of, you know, Link Ray and Ron Ashton and stuff, um, I got to say, I'm not, I am just not really any more interested in kind of blues-based rock and roll. I, I heard a quote recently from Julian Casablanca saying that, that he was just bored with that, you know? Yeah, and I, yeah. I, but I realized like a few months ago, I have a weird aversion to hearing like guitar breaks and songs that I just don't want to hear that shit anymore. Like I, I've heard that a million fucking times. I don't want to hear these you know i don't know i just can't do it i have to turn it off i got to hear something else now sure. and i i love electric guitars i i love it but i'm just getting I, i'm getting so bored with that rep you know repeated riffing of stuff I, I just it doesn't do anything for me yeah it's to a point where you know it's not just that i ignore it it's now that i avoid it Sure. But, you know, I go through phases, so I don't know what I'm saying, but. <laughs> well, so when you, when you start, you played, you played keyboards in the Dell Byzantines, right? Yeah, I played key, keyboards and did sort of joint vocals at times. Yes. Wait, do you remember your first guitar? What was your first electric or acoustic guitar? My first matter? electric was a Hagstrom, a red sort of Strat copy that I got mm -hmm. in a pawn shop on like ninth avenue in the 40s in new york yeah and it was cheaper than any actual fender guitar at the time so, and i had no money so that was my first electric that i had you know back then did the freedom of the no wave thing in which people were able to to be very um you know abstract with what they were doing deconstructive uh, with what they were doing do you think that that appealed to you in part because, I mean, well, because of sort of the qualifications for being a, in a band had basically vanished at that point, basically, you know, do you feel like that was part of what you were excited about was that it, it, it was sort of uncharted waters? Well, it was two things. I mean, a little bit before that kind of ex stuff, um, I got to say, Patti Smith and television, too, were incredibly uh, inspiring because they were saying, hey, we're rock and roll musicians because we fucking say we are. Yeah. And here's what we're going to express. And I found that really still moving, you know, 
And uh, there were so many bands like that, obviously, you know, the Ramones and their kind of formula, which I still love. And I still think, you know, Joey Ramone was in love with like Ronnie Spector and that kind of girl group stuff and how that got translated into the Ramones is such a beautiful thing to me. Yes, yeah, that, that's my favorite quality of theirs. Oh, yeah, so beautiful. But, but you know, um, so that stuff meant a lot to me. But I was also obviously interested in all kinds of music, including avant-garde, so-called classical music, and certainly like outside jazz. And, uh, you know, I, I loved Ornette Coleman and Albert Eiler and these kind of things. So, so when that sort of so-called rock, musicians or that little scene um expanded into not blues-based rock and roll like dna particularly and that kind of stuff man that just really i just love that it just opened my mind like even this form doesn't have to be you know doesn't have to be uh based on any kind of cliche or expectation so you know, then there was Glenn Branca and people using those, what's the word, that kind of um, instrumentation. But, you know, and I saw, I saw, I remember seeing Glenn Branca's band Theoretical Girls, for example, and stuff like that. I was just like, wow, okay, you know, we can go anywhere we want with this stuff. This is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I had a funny experience. I maybe have talked about this once before, but I was friends with Tim Wright, who was, you know, in DNA and of course previously in Paraubu at one point. And, you know, we're both from Ohio, but this was in New York. And and Tim said he would give me a few guitar lessons. <laughs> so I was in his apartment and he may and I couldn't play guitar for shit, you know, and he he showed me these chords which were very unusual and very difficult to play and he said okay just practice going between these two chords over and over and then next week you know come back you know and i said okay cool so i practiced these very weird sounding chords i don't even know what they were and then i went back and tim said okay can you play those over and over and I was like, yeah, kind of. And then while I played them, he turned on a recorder and was working out a piece of music of his own, <laughs> you know? So he was, and I, you know, hey, I caught on to this. I was like, Tim, man, you're just, you're yeah. just using me for that. And he said, well, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing. I'm no guitar teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing so you're a recording artist before you're even really sure well, that that's happening this was on a, no this was a cassette you know practice okay. tape where he was he was working on a piece of his which two with two guitar parts right yeah yeah so, and very odd you know tim wright type guitar parts he what a great what a great musician and person he was too well, so like I, you know, like I had mentioned, you, obviously people like Tom Waits and and Iggy and and the Wu Tang Clan guys. These these people have all factored into your to your to your films. But you've also made movies specifically about music, the Stooges documentary and Neil Young Year of the Horse. How does doing something like that affect your relationship with the, the subjects that you're covering in those films with their work? Wait, say that again. I was just sorry. I drifted away because I was thinking about uh, John Lurie because I was thinking about the beautiful things he did in our first films, uh, 
Stranger Than Paradise, where he made, you know, he had a string quartet. And yeah. he, and in Down by Law, I met all these incredible musicians at that time because he brought in Mark Rebo and all these people that are, are since friends for many years, you know. And, uh, I, you know, there's something about John's, uh, also his openness to music and acting and doing various things as an artist that was very, you know, that was very inspiring to me too. And, and working with him, I'm just going back because, um, I don't know. And I remember in those early days in the late seventies, like Jean-Michel Basquiat was a friend of ours, but he really kind of followed John around because John encouraged him to play the clarinet and, uh, you know, and, and Jean yeah. was into, into that. And Jean was very young and he really liked, John was kind of inspiring. He used to call him Willie Mays, I remember. But John, you know, John was very important in that way musically too. And then next I got to work with, with Tom Waits. And yeah. then after that, of course, with Neil and Riza and, you know, these amazing people, all of them, I, Wow, we're real gifts. But sorry, I drifted back to John for a second because no, that's that's great. I'm a I'm a bit I'm a big fan of his for sure. I I really enjoyed his painting show. I love his paintings. I didn't see all the shows, but I I love his paintings. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, all of those people, yeah, you know, so so important to me. And then getting to work with a lot of musicians starting with John and Richard Edson and even Esther Ballant in Stranger Than pa Paradise was also, she's still a great musician, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a wonderful musician. And, uh, you know, and then Screaming Jay Hawkins and Joe Strummer and Iggy and all these incredible people that I got to work with both also as actors. But then getting back to your, qu your question was about Neil and Iggy and those films. Yeah, and and... and if making something like that, because making a film is, is involved and very, very, you know, intensive at times, I wonder if it changes the way you hear or perceive their music when you work with somebody that closely. No, because, you know, that was like lifeblood already. I was just thrilled to, first of all, to work with those guys. Right. And, and then to make a film about their music, you know, I was already... I mean, come on, the Stooges, that's like my blood. That's I'm like Midwestern Stooges, MC5, and then a lot of, you know, uh, so, you know, black music of the time, but basically R&B, what was called R&B back then and soul music. That was my blood, you know? So those guys are heroic to me and Crazy Horse. I mean, I love Neil's, all of Neil's music, but Crazy Horse is like... I don't know. That just speaks so deeply to me, the wildness of it. Well, the wildness of it and the meditative, the sort of, uh, you know, obviously you've explored a lot of drone in your own work, uh, you know, films and, and music, but yeah. Yes, for sure. To get ready for this interview, I went back and listened to a bunch of stuff, but I listened to the Year of the Horse soundtrack, and I love that it opens with that it's all one song. Uh, Neil says that at the beginning, and it's like <laughs> yeah. the film, your film about them, kind of like captures that quality in a in a positive way, you know, because it 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 feels immersive. Like you slip into the crazy horse slipstream, and then you're just sort of in it, 
and all of Neil's stuff, Neil's stuff is all over the map at times, but when he's with Crazy Horse, something very elemental happens that I, I just love. What uh, what kind of converse? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Also, also, Neil, you know, Neil is very intuitive. I, I am also, and I, I learned a lot from being with Neil about always, and I've learned it from other people, the great uh, DP, the director of photography, Robbie Mueller, certainly taught me to, Mm -hmm. always trust your instincts and don't analyze shit like make sure you know you're feeling it and trust your feelings and i remember neil saying to me once during the year of the horse filming stuff he said or maybe it was during no it was about crazy horse he said you know we never ever think about what we're doing that would just ruin it man you know because they don't it's not about that it's like feeling it and the beauty of crazy horse too is somehow in the the imperfection in a way of the rhythm section of you know ralph molina and billy talbot they are not metronomic musicians you know what i mean there's a yeah yeah elastic thing that moves around because it's not perfect and that is what makes them so great too and neil knows that he loves that you know yeah, it's that human. So, it's that human quality. The sort of, uh, yeah, the the perfectly imperfect uh, thing that happens, where it's just it sounds natural in such a. It doesn't just sound natural. It sounds like extra natural or something. I don't know how to how to put it. Yeah, if you ever mentioned like a click track, probably Poncho would have pulled a gun on me. You yeah, know what I mean? <laughs> like, of course, of course. <laughs> we we don't do that. What what kind of conversations did you have with Neil? about dead man before he recorded the soundtrack did you have any did you sort of lay out some thoughts or did you guys just sort of go into it a little bit you know blind is probably the wrong word but you know a little bit less formed well we had an interesting thing like i had given him this you know i I met him while we were shooting because i got we had a day off in arizona at one point and crazy horse was playing and i was able to get a whole bunch of tickets for the crew and everybody who wanted to go. So we saw them, oh, a beautiful show. Um, and then uh, it was like around the period of Sleeps with Angels, I think, that album. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I got to meet uh, Neil through Elliot because I knew some, I knew Frank who worked with Elliot through, I knew, th- I got to hook up through Rick Ocasek who helped hook me up with. So anyway, Elliot hooked me up so I could come and just talk to Neil after that show. And I remember saying, Neil, and introducing myself, and I said, yeah, we're shooting this film, and really I just w- wanted to see if you might be interested in you know, scoring it later. And he looked at me and said, I don't make plans. <laughs> and he was about to get on his bus, and then he turned back and said, I'll tell you what, when you have a rough cut, man, send it to me. And I promise you, I will respond in a matter of days. I, I give you my word of whether I, I have a, you know, if I feel it, right? Sure. So when I had a rough cut months later, I, I got it to Neil. And two days later, he calls me up saying, hey, I want to do this. Uh, I love this film. I want to do the score. Can you fly out here, you know, and hang out in my ranch for a few days and we can talk? So I got to fly to California. I got picked up. I got taken to Neil's incredible Broken Arrow Ranch. I got to stay overnight for two nights and just talk. And Elliot was there. So first, Neil said, 
he had the interest of getting Dave Grohl and Chris Novotelic from Nirvana. Uh, Kurt was gone, right? And he said, maybe I should get those two guys and it would be the three of us, you know? And wow. I said, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know. And then we would talk. We spent, we hung out for two full days. And then he said, uh, and then I said, did you ever see, I'm not a big Eric Clapton fan, I must admit, but I, he did a beautiful sort of solo electric guitar thing for this film, Stephen Freer's film, The Hit, which is a film I, re I really love. So Neil said, oh, I didn't, I don't know, man. And then the next day he said, I was thinking about what you said. What do you think if I just did it alone as just a solo, elect, mostly electric guitar thing? And he played me a few things, some little uh, ideas. He had little chord progressions. And I said, you know, I kind of think that would be maybe the best approach, but it's really what you feel, you know? And he's like, that's it. I'm going to do that. Okay, okay. So then I went back to New York and he'd send me little sketches here and there, but it was also beautiful. Right. And then we just recorded it live to the film later in San Francisco in a big warehouse. I think Neil borrowed the Rolling Stones mobile soundtrack or something. And uh, it was really cool. He just played through the film over a two day period, maybe three times. If and we had this incredible score from him. Yeah. I think Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the Criterion version has some video of that, maybe? Yes, I made a little video while he was recording, yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, that's wild. What a, it makes me, I mean, I wonder what the, the, the Neil plus the Nirvana rhythm section would have resulted in, but, but, but the Dead Man's score is such a evocative and one of my favorite Neil Young things. For a long time, it was hard to find it at all. I had I have a CD copy that I that I got at some point, but a couple of years ago, I think the Neil Young Archive put it out on vinyl, and I upgraded. Uh, but yeah, that's a yeah. That's, it's that's hard a, to I think they're going to put it back out, or maybe they did. I don't know, but yeah, Neil yeah. always has so many things, and of course, we lost Elliot Roberts, who was yeah. Yeah, Ir irreplaceable to say the least. You know that guy. What a what a human being. I don't know that guy was incredible. You know so. the thing about and you're right though. There there's so much Neil. Um and and that's why I'm so thankful for the archives, which is such an it's it. There's not a lot of artists who are doing it like that with that level of care and that level of uh, attention to to. To keeping this oh, stuff. Oh man, I, I I go in the archives up almost every morning. You know, I, I yeah. just check in, and then those little um, porch and fireside films that Daryl Hannah filmed of Neil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a little series. Those are just beautiful little jewels. I think you know. So uh, Neil's so playing to he'll play to some chickens, or you know, <laughs> or he'll be out on on the porch or he's by the fire those are just lovely films I, I i love those yeah yeah well i talked a little bit about how patterson how patterson was sort of centered on routines um and 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 sort of the the rhythm of, of daily life but sometimes your your films are sort of about the opposite of that you know sort of being a stranger in a strange land like like mystery train or or the dead don't die which is sort of a, a basically about the world ending uh more or less uh i I walked out yeah. of the. <laughs> yes, it, it is pretty much. It gets pretty dark intentionally, but 
I I walked out of the theater of that one, you know, and and uh, I was so surprised by it because I I guess I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but I don't. It wasn't whatever I must have been expecting because there's this sort of, it's got this B movie sort of genre horror thing happening, but then there's this almost like Looney Tunes charm that's in the mix, and then with all of that though. I get the sense that the dread that sort of pulses through the movie is very real and very serious as well. Uh, you know, that, that sense that things are, are, are going uh, sideways in our, in our world. And clearly, yeah. clearly we, we saw that with the pandemic, but you could see it before the pandemic too, you know? The apocalypse well, we, could, been... we could see it with the climate crisis at, very clearly in 1970. You know, right, right. So yeah. come on, for fifty years at least, we've been seeing. You know, it's been very, very. We've been denying it forever. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. That film, The Dead Don't Die. I'm I'm proud of the film because it has a very weird balance. And I, I don't know. I, I really think there's. A, I think it's funny, and it wasn't intended to be. So a lot of horror people, they don't like it. And I understand because the last thing I wanted to do was make a horror film where tension builds, tension builds, tension builds. Here comes the monster. Yeah. You know, like that's not what we were trying to do at all. So we're trying to make a kind of sort of silly, strange, you know, comedy that then ends with a kind of dread and darkness, you know, that I don't know. I don't want to analyze it. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know what to say about it, really. Yeah. But, you know, I, and it was very, very hard to make. That film was really traumatic just physically to pull off. Or I don't want to go into all the reasons. But so it's kind of like, okay, I don't know. I, I, I always move on, you know, like the Only Lovers soundtrack thing that, you know, I, I haven't, I don't watch the films once I'm done with them, really, you know? Right, so right. I haven't seen Only Lovers since 2013, and I haven't seen The Dead Don't Die for several years, and nor will I ever see them again. Right. You just got to let them. You, what What do you think motivates that that letting go? Is it just that? Well, you, you just got to go forward. I don't like looking back. I don't like analyzing it. I don't want to see the mistakes I made. I don't want to see why would, how would I do it different now? We did it. And, making films is very difficult. You know, it's people who don't make films have no idea how hard it is. You know, it's really takes, it'll kick your ass, you know? Yeah. So uh, I remember Werner Herzog once telling me, you know, we must be like athletes because to make a film is insane and we're out yeah. of our minds to attempt such a thing. And so, you know, it's so hard. So w once you've done it and you give it your all, I got to walk away. They're like, okay, they're like my children now. They, they go out in the world. I, I can't take care of you now. You know, I gave you everything I have and good luck to you, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, we, I don't want to dwell necessarily just on the dead don't die, but I do want to note that I'm a huge fan of Steve Buscemi and he is so funny in that movie and so, uh, so deranged, uh, He's almost doing something 
like he might do in almost like some of those Adam Sandler movies that he's in or something. Just this sort of like wacky. I mean that as a compliment for sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of him. You you guys oh. go way back, right? Like oh he- yeah, we we go ba- way back to the late seventies. We've been friends, you know. And he lives near me some of the time up here in the Catskills, so I get to see him. Oh really? I j- oh, I just love Steve always. I've always. I've always been in love with Steve. He's just the best, you know, and he's such a great actor. But we had a funny thing while we were shooting The Dead Don't Die. At one point, somebody said to him, because he's wearing that pseudo MAGA hat. Yeah. And somebody said, Steve, what if like people come up to you in a, a restaurant or something and give you shit about that hat? No, he said. And then he said, no, I'm worried they're going to come up to me and say, oh, we're having a meeting. Uh, maybe yeah. Wanna... <laughs> you know, Steve, Steve was saying, no, I'm more worried about that. You know, yeah, I'm not. Like... <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah, that's that's. So you guys were sort of in the, the same. I mean, kind of in the, the no wave thing, right? I mean, more or less associated. Oh, with, yeah, with that? yeah, yeah. I used to see Steve perform with Mark Boone Jr., Mark and Steve in these clubs in the Lower East Side. And uh before Steve had even been in a film, they did these kind of very weird comedy duo skit stuff that was very dark and strange and hilarious, you know? Yeah. And yeah, we had John Lurie and Rockets Red Glare. We were always going to, to see them, you know? We, and so, yeah, Steve. And then Steve was a bartender at First and A, a bar we used to hang out too. I think both Mark Boone and Steve were bartenders there. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it was just, yeah, no, we go way back, Steve. And then, you know, Joe Andres, Steve's wife, who unfortunately we lost, was an incredible artist and uh, choreographer and filmmaker. And uh, so the two of them were just always fascinating people. I, I just I just love them. I love Steve. You've always been very, very open about sort of embracing, drawing inspiration sort of for, from wherever it may present itself. Uh, do you think that was, was that an ethos that you can tie back to those early days? Do you think, was that something that you, that you feel like you might've, might've picked up on the spirit of the time that, and carried that forward? Does it feel that way to you? Wait, what? The early days, uh, sort of, sort of the early no wave, no, no wave no, days. But carried what through? Sorry. That's like a, just That's that <laughs> yeah, stoner I know. response wait what <laughs> <laughs> well it's um, probably a response to a, a, some sort of stoner question too um well i i what i was sort of asking was about you know you've oh, always, openness to things um yeah to just it, I think to, to it being inspired from, yeah i think it comes from honestly my mom and my her mother my grandmother because my mom was a, a writer she was a film reviewer before she got married for the Akron Beacon Journal. Mm. Um, but my mom and my grandmother were always very open to all kinds of forms of expression. My grandmother was a school teacher with no money, but she used to refinish furniture in her basement and then trade it to like gypsies and these Persian um, rug dealers that would come in a van smoking these black cigars. And uh, she was very open to lots of strange kind of, you know, appreciation of things. My grandmother used to cut images out of magazines of famous paintings 
and then frame them and put them up. You know? yeah, so wow. she'd have little Rembrandts that she took out of a magazine, but put in a nice frame she got in a garage sale or whatever, but very highly aesthetic. And so, and they were always very open to, you know, different forms. My mom told me she got to see, uh, she got to see Artie Shaw play once and, you know, she got to meet Roy Rogers and she covered the wedding of, uh, of um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall because they got married in Ohio. So she got to cover it. Um, she got to take a train to New York to write about Marlon Brando when he appeared on Broadway before he even made movies. Wow. And she came back and I don't know if it was streetcar or what, and she wrote a review rever referring to him as having animal magnetism or something like that, you know? Yeah. And my mom, she loved Robert Mitchum, but she loved James Thurber. She loved, you know, Renaissance painting. And my grandmother, you know, she listened to Charlie Pride records in her basement while refinishing furniture and then going upstairs and reading Proust, you know? And, you know, in a very modest, tiny little, she had no money or anything. So I think they, I think they really opened my brain when I was li little to, and also my grandmother really instilled an interest in indigenous and Native American culture for me. We took a trip to Southern Ohio together to see the Indian mounds. And she used to give me uh, arrowheads for my birthday yeah. And she got me really interested to, in that, which is still a huge part of my soul of, you know, my interest and appreciation for, you know, native culture in, in America and all over the planet, indigenous cultures, you know? Yeah. So I yeah. think it came from them, really, you know? You 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 mentioned making a, a a book of collages, which I didn't actually realize was the case, but I'm, I'm really excited to see that eventually. Uh Oh, you... thanks. Yeah. Um, they're very minimal. I'm very inspired. I, I love newsprint. So they're only made of newsprint um, and then put on. And often all I do is often replace heads or remove things, Yeah, you know, yeah. so. Uh, but yes, I, I love making these little collages and I, I try not to think while I'm doing them. I listen to music. I always do them in a kind of peaceful way in my little studio. And I have hundreds of them, you know? Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of collage art or the whole form of collage and also how it spills into music and other forms for sure. Yeah. So Absolutely. I was thinking the other day, you know, my collages and my poems and my music, they all kind of follow a similar procedure of, of putting things together that might not immediately seem like they go together. You know, like when I make music, I'm, not, I'm gathering tracks. I'm not trying to make a structure of except occasionally I write songs that do have a verse and a chorus and a breakdown, you know, but sure. mostly I'm more avoiding that. And it is a kind of related to collage, certainly in the way that John Cage and Brian Eno and all of dub music and all of hip hop, you know, yeah. um, take, take disparate things and make something new out of them. But yeah, I'm excited about my book of collages and then my show that's coming up in the fall. Well, that's that's great, and I I can't wait to check it out. And 
you know, Jim, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me about all this stuff. I, I, I feel like I could just keep going and going and going, but I, but I well, should. Li- I, I should. I, <laughs> well, I did want to talk a little bit about the Only Lovers uh, soundtrack. Let's do it. Yeah, I love that soundtrack. Um, because you know that's coming out. Uh, it's being re-released on our, our friends uh, Sacred Bones, Caleb Bratton who has so many artists on their label that we, we love. And, uh, you know, we made the, it was originally on all tomorrow's parties, ATP records, um, Barry and Deborah, we worked with them a lot on, uh, they put out our first squirrel EPs. They also, uh, did these really beautiful things. I gotta say, this is Barry Hogan and Deborah Hagen's from all tomorrow's parties. They, when Only Lovers came out, they put they put together these events, um, which were concerts that had White Hills played, Yosef Van Vissen played solo, um, Zola Jesus played, Yasmin Hamdan played, and Squirrel played. We played live shows, but they also had these rooms they recreated from the film, and they'd have like... Uh, I don't know, vampire nurses giving people little shot glasses of blood in quotes when you entered or, yeah. oh man, they did these beautiful things and they put them on in Berlin, Cologne, London, Paris, and New York. And this was these ATP. And I also did, a, you know, I curated an, an All Tomorrow's Parties and they used to do those incredible event, you know, those, those um, festivals, right? And they did it with no corporate funding. And eventually they, you know, I don't know, they had financial problems and we, our record was sort of out of print. So we, we kind of took it back from them. Um, you know, they, they agreed we, we should take it back. Sure. And, uh, but I, I just got to say the things they did for the film and uh, just their imaginations and what they did. They did some incredibly beautiful things for us. So initially we were on ATP, but now we had to put, we're putting it back out on Sacred Bones because it had gone out of print. And, uh, you know, Sacred Bones put out uh, Squirrels. Um, we did a record, some music for Robbie Mueller uh, re- fairly recently. They put out a kind of, almost stoner metal EP that Squirrel did called EP 260. Yeah. Uh, They put out a record with me and Yosef, at least one of them. Um, So, you know, uh, we, we love them. They're a fantastic label and uh, we're excited. We're going to do some more things with them in the future, but I, I do have to mention ATP because They've had some trouble, you know, I guess, just financially. How could you not in this world if you first started out avoiding corporate financing, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. So, you know, I don't know what problems they've had exactly, but I got to take my hats off to them for what they did for Only Lovers Left It Live. They did some beautiful stuff, so... Well, and it's it's such an evocative soundtrack. It's such a cool... That that of... Of all of your films, I mean, it's 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 almost impossible to separate the the music from the films. But with only lovers left alive, it's especially difficult to do so because it's all sort of this connected thing. Um, and and 
and the and the variety of 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 tones you know from sort of these like very almost spooky things to these just like ecstatic and beautiful things it's just that's a it's a great thing and then of course you've got that incredible version of funnel of love which is mind-blowing so yeah it's a, yeah, it's a because, good thing to have yeah well i'm a huge i'm a wanda jackson fan and i've always loved that song so much so and i got to see wanda jackson once at the continental club in austin texas years ago where elvis used to play and shit cool really cool little club but you know it was really funny because shane that's Madeline Fallen from Colts, who did the vocal for us. And Shane Stoneback, he brought her in and made her stay in the studio like one whole night long, I think, making her drink whiskey and go out and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and got her, her voice got kind of damaged. But she is what a, she, what a sweetheart to, to do that for us and what a beautiful kind of version and Shane kind of put that cover that version together and got Madeline in there and that so that we really love that and then Yosef got uh, Zola Jesus to do something on one track and of course we have Yasmin Hamdan the incredible Yasmin Hamdan doing a track so uh, you know we like the idea because the movie is about the movie takes place in Detroit and Tangier and it's about the past history of human expression and and i don't know what it's about but it's kind of weighing old things and new things yeah and so having yosef's loot with our kind of uh molten guitar approach and drums it just seemed like so it was really a a kind of pleasure to find the, how these things intersected kind of intuitively together yeah wow well, it's and incredible. Car Carter Logan and Joseph and, and Shane and I were really the elements of Squirrel at that time. And Carter and I continue and and we still, you know, c connect with Shane and Joseph for sure. Well, it sounds like there's plenty of, of, of more interesting stuff forthcoming, more of you moving ahead. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate it. Bef before we go, though, I do want to ask one last question. In, uh, in, in Down by Law, uh, Tom Waits is a form. You know, he Lee Baby Sims. That's his DJ persona. Right. Now I don't. Now I now I decided I don't want to ask you this because it might be ruining something fun, and I don't want to ruin something fun. I was going to ask if when in Night on Earth we hear Tom Waits on the radio, and I've always just assumed it's the same the same DJ, but. I don't want to. I don't know. I, I might have to cut this out of the podcast because now I'm like, why, why, why ruin the mystery? I don't know. Well, you know, it's intended to be, or at least it's intended that you would make the connection to wonder. Sure. So, so I guess the intention was to provoke you to ask the question without answer, without really answering it. You know. That's perfect. No, that's exactly it's kind right. Of left, left field answer. <laughs> That's yeah, Tom, because like, Tom had some of that stuff he had. I don't know. He, you know, he knows all that patter and stuff. He loves all that, like, you know, the records go round and round and the sound and, you know, all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's got he a great, 
He's got such a great DJ voice in in Down by Law. I love I love when he does his little demonstration. But uh, did you did you ever listen to the um, radio shows that Bob Dylan hosted? The, he had the, his own radio. Sh- uh, what was it called? Theme Time Radio Hour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one time he introduced a record by saying, "Some say that this singer." That, no, some say that this singer's voice sounds like a bowl full of rusted nails, but I say it sounds beautiful. Here he is, Tom Waits. Then <laughs> <laughs> he played a Tom track. It was so good. That's that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for ta- for talking. I mean it. It's a huge huge honor, and it's really really great to have you on the on the oh, show. Oh, Jason, thank you. I could talk on and on with you. It's been really fun. I don't know. We talked a lot. I don't know what we talked about, but it was anyway. all good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, White Hills. Did I mentioned they were part of our tour too. You know uh, that that we did in supporting the film. They appear in uh, in Only Lovers Left Alive. Yeah, well, how about we go out? We'll 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 play a little of one of their songs on the way out. Excellent, uh, excellent. I love them. Okay, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with all you do. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it so much, and I appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully, we'll speak again at some point. All right, Jason. I look forward to it. All right, take it easy. All right. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls create visual assets. And our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder, Justin Gage. We'll be back next Wednesday with another all new conversation for you to check out. I'll be joined by the synthesis Colleen. Check out her great album, the tunnel and the clearing now if you want to get a little heads up on what we're going to be discussing next week stay safe until then take care of yourself and take care of others we'll speak with you next week on aquarium drunkard transmissions yeah.